0: Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Kieran Merchant. Now, it's often said that entrepreneurs and founders start companies to prove somebody else wrong, and our next guest is no exception. Kieran spent decades as a consultant to the aviation industry, so when his boss refused to grant him an $8,000 raise, he decided to leave his employer and start his own aviation consulting firm. 18 months later, yes, less than two years later, Kieran sold Merchant Aviation to Aeroport de Paris, one of the largest aviation companies for a high single-digit multiple of EBITDA. Here to share with you the full story is Kieran Merchant. Enjoy.
1: Kieran Merchant, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, thank you. How did you get into aviation consulting?
2: Uh, uh, By fluke, uh, basically I'm a kind of architect by profession, by by education. Um, I had come to United States to do my master's in architecture and urban design. Um, Before that, I had my own practice back in India, uh, which is where I grew up in Mumbai, uh, and always wanted to plan to go back to India. Uh, where what happened was that I saw um, a, a position at TWA, uh, which is for the younger audiences may not know what TWA is. Uh, for you and me who know that TWA is one of the giant airlines that actually legacy airlines that actually changed the history of jet aviation. Uh, TWA had a very interesting airport terminal in JFK, which was designed by a very famous architect, which I had studied all my life. And this job was a summer internship job that basically allowed uh, somebody to come in and catalog these original drawings, hand-drawn drawings of aerosol. And for me, it was like the opportunity of a lifetime. So I went for the interview. They looked at my resume and said, well, you're overqualified. You have a master's degree. You had your own practice. Uh, We were looking for a first-year architecture student. And I said, well, if you allow me to see these drawings, I would work for you for free. Uh, and and they just found it amusing and they said, okay, you want this job so much, okay, it's yours. Um, long story short, in one month, um, this was during the early 90s of the worst recession uh, period. There were no jobs uh, and TWA was already had uh, emerged from bankruptcy. So uh, they had lost every single person that they had in the department. And it was a very skeleton crew. And somebody looked at my resume and said, why are we wasting this guy in a drawing room? He should be out there doing projects. So I promoted <laughs> from a plant clerk to project engineer within within a month. And then I was doing projects. And that's basically how I learned every aspect of the airline that, you know, from parking the aircraft to throwing bags to, and that was kind of a very uh, definitive kind of an education for me. Uh, of six years of hard labor, where I had to learn every aspect of how does an airline business work, how does an airport infrastructure come together, and that was a, an interesting learning curve for me. And that's how basically I got into aviation. And then I kind of grew into different roles. Uh, mainly worked on the airline side for the for the first fifteen years. Then I moved from airline to the airport side. And learned how an airport operator basically look at and develop capital programs. Um, and so that's kind of was my first 25 years was, was my training as uh, managing director of design and construction for the airline first. And then chief of aviation planning for Port Authority of New York and New Jersey.
1: I was going to say the, the Port Authority for New York and New Jersey is interesting because, you know, most consultants... Uh, When they think about going, quote, client side, it's it's a one way street, meaning they take the service roles and they parlay that to a a client side gig. And then they're on easy street. Right. It's a nine to five gig. There's a pension. There's a good salary and not all the you're working all crazy hours day and night. Why on earth did you leave the port authority, the pension, the money, the safety, to go start a company? That doesn't make sense to me. Explain that. But what happened was that once I completed this
2: so-called vision for the long-term uh, infrastructure, uh, it was it was not exciting for me to be in that job. Um, also, what happened with with all the entrepreneurs that you know at some point you basically say, "What am I really doing?" And for me, it was. I always kick myself and say, "I've done everything right. Why am I not raising to the next level?" Uh, and I think that uh, I would—I I have said this to my my former bosses—that they did me the biggest favor that could be is not promoting me when the the time was there to promote me after performing very very well. I was basically kind of left behind and actually one of my bosses told me that, well, you're doing such a good job. We're not going to change anything about you. And I'm like, well, you're penalizing me for doing a good job. And I gave my two weeks notice, uh, and left, uh, not because I, I and I, I, I did, I do tell them that had you given me that $8,000 promotion, probably I would have still been working for Port Authority. <laughs>
1: Was that it? Eight grand? Yes,
2: that's that's yeah. because they have these tiers that, that you get. Uh, so yes, I would have basically made eight thousand dollars more. Uh,
1: uh, so I the, think you might have made a few more dollars out <laughs> Mav. I'm I'm just guessing, putting a few uh, yes. <laughs> a few uh, different disparate pieces of information together. So tell me about Mav. How did this business get off the ground? Sure. What What does Mav do? So so Mav
2: is it stands for Merchant Aviation. And 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 we kind of uh lovingly sh- uh, kind of made the short form of merchant aviation as MA. And then we and we basically were joking around, my wife and I who started the business on our dining table. We're like, Well, you know, what is merchant deviation? We need to have something short form. And and we said, man, M A, and I'm like, No, MA sounds like master of architect, uh, you know, master of accountant. I'm like, no, it has to be something. So I said, okay, M capital, A capital, V, small. And and then I said, yes, we're going to call ourselves Mav. And my wife said, why Mav? And I said, Top Gun. Uh, I said, you know, the character of Tom Cruise basically calls himself Maverick, and everybody calls him Mav. So I said, we are going to be the Mavericks of aviation infrastructure industry, and we'll call ourselves Mav. So
1: that- OK, but wait a minute. If I'm running an airport, I'm not sure I want the Maverick. Well, was that a problem to have that branding or did it help you? Because <laughs> frankly, you're thinking you're probably really super risk averse if you're running the Port Authority of New-, New York, New Jersey. You want the most, don't you want the traditional stuffy architects? You know, tell me more about that. And, and that is so funny that you ask, because that is
2: what really Uh, made our brand recognizable because of not being the sugarcoating consultants who will tell you what you want to hear. And this has been kind of the reputation of my personal reputation and the company's reputation all along where we were very honest and and forthcoming on what did not work. And not everybody can basically sit there and take the criticism, uh, but those are not the clients for us the clients who uh, have been a loyal to us and have been have given us work they have actually told us that we want you to come in and and kick the box and 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 shake things up because we want some out of the box thinking and and that is something that uh, i have been very fortunate to find people who have worked with me as part of my team and my clients who have always encouraged us to think outside the box, being able to kind of really come up with innovative solutions. And that is how we basically kind of survive uh, all this time. So what MAV does is that uh, we are purely consultants on airport infrastructure development. Uh, To make it easy, I say, we design and build airports. Uh, And and partly it is, Over time, we developed our, our service offering where uh, airport infrastructure is very complicated. 99% of the people who fly, they don't have no idea what it takes to basically run an air or develop an airport infrastructure. But everything from the time you enter the airport road all the way up to 30,000 feet up in the, in the air is all related to airport infrastructure. And we are one very unique firm that actually kind of provides this entire spectrum of holistic services from the entrance all the way up to 30,000 feet up in the air.
1: So if I needed a new terminal, I'm in Toronto, so we were going to create Terminal 5. You would come in, vision the project, scope it out, design it, create the architectural drawings, engineering, compliance, legal, actually would you also subcontract the actual construction of the project sometimes we
2: come in and we just basically are the strategic vision vision planners who come in and actually give you a, a holistic view of what a 30-year plan could look like um in fact
1: to traditional consulting and that that's way. right it's
2: a purely service um a based business and so um you know our what we sell is basically the man hours uh,
1: and then did you mark up the construction? So no, so so
2: the only thing that we do not get involved is is construction. Okay, uh, <laughs> And the reason why we stayed out of the construction is because that requires a very different type of a team. Mm. And we made uh, uh, at a very early stage in our discussion uh, or in our development, we made a decision that that was uh, a practice that is extremely risky needs a very large team and we did not want to go in there. So over time, <coughs> Merchant Aviation found a niche uh, which, which really separated us from the rest of the industry because the players in this industry are, are multi-billion dollar um, infrastructure planning and, and consulting firms. Uh, we are nowhere compared to them. We are a, truly a mom and pop shop. Uh, today, we are about 33 people. Uh, when I sold the company, we were 21. Um, and, and we wanted to remain boutique firm, um, which is basically what we wanted to make sure is that we are able to provide a personalized service. So when a client picks up the phone and calls, you can actually get an access to the CEO of the company and have somebody uh, hold your hand through the entire process. What we found, and this is kind of my journey into aviation consulting from being on the client side for the first 25 years before I started my own firm, what I realized is that there were a lot of people who did the front-end work, which was kind of number crunching, developing kind of strategy for the for the plan project planning. And then there were some really very, very good firms to kind of design and develop design, architectural work, engineering work, but there was a wide gap in between. And, and the, the people who could do the initial planning, they, they all think that they can do design. And all the designers think, oh, they can do the planning. But as a client, I had personally felt that there was a huge gap. And, and that's the gap that I wanted to fill. In.
1: And when you started it and had this vision of, of filling that gap, like, what, did you have an end game?
2: One of my mentors said, my, my daughter was in, in, in final year of college. And, and and he said, you know, you're one paycheck, uh, you, you, you're one tuition check away from freedom. And I'm like, oh my God, I never thought of that. For 25 years, I always did not want to leave my my paying job or my job security because I always kind of thought of earning the, the living for the family. And for the first time, I kind of said, well, maybe if I take a risk, I have nothing to lose. I can always go back and find a job, but this is my opportunity to try something different. And so when I started Merchant Aviation, um, it was, it was, I did not know what I was going to do. Uh, literally, on, uh, we, we, we came up with a name. On Saturday morning, Friday night, my wife said, why don't you start your own business? Saturday morning, we came up with a name, Merchant Aviation, MAV. On Monday morning, I called up my lawyer and I said, can you open up a Merchant Aviation LLC?" I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no idea where I was going to sell services, what services would I even offer. Uh, but what I started was with a business plan, uh, knowing that I want to sell the company. I had no idea what the company was going to do, what I was going to offer, but I said, well, I'm going to sell the company. kind of started researching the industry newspapers and realized that there was a $105 billion cap- infrastructure development need in the next 10 years. Um, and so I said, okay, if there is a $105 billion need, if I take 1% of that and start pursuing that 1% of that, and if I get one percent success my company could be worth 10 million dollars and that was how basically i understood that there is a demand and this is where i kind of started really defining what i was able to offer and where can i really start focusing uh so that's how basically it it began um and, and 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 just one more thought that that like most of the entrepreneurs kind of have this difficulty of like, you know, it's a chicken and egg situation. You don't know what you're doing. And then once you know what you're doing, how do you start? How do you basically bring in the capital? What do you do? You know, and so for me, I started selling my own services. as a consultant, uh, which I was able to get very quickly because, you know, I had a good network. I was able to find work that kind of brought in some money to survive. Um, and, and what I realized that very quickly, that this was an unsustainable model because it was great. I was making a lot of money, but I realized that if I want to scale up, I, can, I, I have to clone myself. And one of my clients said, Kiran, the good thing about the, 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 the your strength of merchant aviation is that everybody wants to work with you. He said, the biggest weakness that you have is that everybody wants to work with you, Kiran Merchant. And he said, you only have 24 hours in a day and you will never be able to kind of get out unless you scale up. And that kind of started kind of turning the wheels in my head and saying, well, I need to have employees. So I did, again, I did not have the money. Uh, I I had sufficient money to be able to kind of just do the basic operations. I hired my wife as the chief operating officer. Who was also not getting paid uh, and 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 I said, "Well, you basically try to develop the processes, and I will go out there and get work um, as 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 consultants, you need to basically sell man hours. I did not have the money to go and hire people, so I went out and and spoke to some of my very talented friends who had retired from Port authority or from the airline business. And I said, look, I know that you don't want to work. You make enough money through your pension and your 401ks. But what I can offer you is interesting projects. Would you like to work on some interesting projects? And you decide whether you work for two hours a day or 20 hours a day. But I would like you to basically come in and actually help me develop this business. And they were all excited because they all knew that I was good at selling. I was able to kind of think big. And so they said, yes, he said, we don't want to basically get involved in business development. We will not uh, get involved in financing. We will not give you any money. You may not pay us. That's fine. But if you pay us, that would be great. And so on, on day 15, I, on my website, I had seven people, including myself, and the combined experience of my team was about 250 years. Uh, and it wow. was, it was, it looked big. But they were all like uh, uh, consultants who basically, and and so that kind of really put us on the map because people who started looking at it was not just looking at me as one individual, but now as a team. Um, and then as we started growing, we started basically hiring junior staff who go, were getting trained by these very senior level people. So we had both a uh, best of both worlds. A, training the young crowd with some very senior level uh, employees.
1: I love this. And I think you were a pioneer in what will become a, a really interesting business strategy, which would be you know, engaging people who are semi-retired in a creative way, keeping them obviously very dynamic in the way you have to manage them, but I think tapping into their experience. I want to go back to something you said earlier, though, which was that you wanted to start this business to sell it and and i'm i'm just curious as to what was driving that because for a lot of people quote in the second half of their career which it sounds like you were at the time you know their goal is to you know, put out a shingle be a consultant but they're very risk averse and you know their vision is to to kind of stay busy what was the idea behind wanting to sell what did selling mean to you at that at that time sure so there were two parts
2: to that one was basically i had worked and i'd seen people uh during my my earlier tenure that had started companies who were entrepreneurs who were running good companies uh but they were kind of either stuck with that for their entire lives uh and when they passed away or when they retired, their companies invariably collapsed. Or some of them basically just kind of, they just passed on their name. Uh, And so for me, it was not about leaving a legacy. Uh, For me, it was about getting something started, handing it over to the right partners who can then grow uh, and develop the vision that I have uh, and, and, and continue to kind of develop that further, that was one part. The second part of of my personal life is basically uh, is an interesting life because I, in in addition to being an architect, I am also a filmmaker, uh, producer, director, and I've always uh, uh, straddled two horses my whole life. Uh, As I was uh, growing up uh, as an actor, as a director, my, my dream was always to be good to join film school and become a film filmmaker. I did not get into film school. So I ended up in architecture uh, and architect and then found out that some of the greatest architects or the greatest filmmakers were also architects. So I said, OK, I did not land in too bad a position. Uh, long story short, 10 years later, I came to, uh, to New York to do my master's in architecture and I went to Pratt Institute. And I actually realized that Pratt had a film school. So I dropped everything. I went to the dean of the film school and I said, you know something? Destiny has brought me here. I'm quitting architecture today and I'm basically going to join film program. And he said, no, not so fast. Uh, he said, you think that you could be a filmmaker, but you may not be a filmmaker. So why don't we just basically give you one class and see what you can do? Um, well, six months later, he basically offered me a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, and, and I ended up basically getting my, 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 my second bachelor's in filmmaking, but he put one condition and he told me, uh, Donald Pitkoff was the chair of, 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 uh, Pratt's film program. And he said, one day you will thank me, but he said, the only way I'm going to give you this is that if you, you cannot quit your graduate studies. You have to complete your master's program in architecture," he said. "I'm not going to let you walk away from something where you invested so much time." And I said, "Well, I don't have time." And he said, "Well, you have to figure it out." So I took 27 credits every semester, uh, doing two degrees simultaneously. And and I still remember that basically when Don told me this, he said, "Someday you'll thank me." Uh, where as you know, filmmaking. Is, is a great uh but only point zero one percent people actually succeed uh it's it's a, la- a, la- a, labor, a labor of love uh, and and you know so i had i had to rely on architecture to kind of make my living uh and and do filmmaking as a passion so coming back to selling was that my 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 aspiration was always at one point i wanted to be a full-time filmmaker.
1: So this was a mercenary thing, right? This was like, I want to start a business, I want to sell it, and I want to go be a filmmaker. That's right.
2: That's right. And I wanted to basically, did not want to be a struggling filmmaker, where basically I had to do any job because I could not afford to be selective. And I'm like, I'm going to make enough money that is going to help me survive. I don't need to be rich. As long as I basically don't have to have nine-to-five job. And I can focus my, my full energy on being a filmmaker, even if it is a starving filmmaker, I'm okay with that. Uh, but that's what I wanted to do. And I also, one of the other things that what I told my wife when I was 45, I said, I'm going to retire at 55 and I'm going to become a filmmaker. And I told her, I said, whatever happens, wherever we are in life, I'm going to quit everything. And I'm going to basically become a filmmaker. I said, if you don't have money, we're going to sell our house and move into a studio or an apartment, but we're going to do this thing. So be prepared that at some point I'm going to do this thing. Um, again, it was all manifestation because I retired when I was 56. Uh, and I sold my company when I was 54. uh, uh but it was, it was basically kind of the idea of selling was not to become rich or make a ton of money or anything of that sort. But it was to pursue a higher purpose in life that would make me happy, uh, allowed me the freedom of being able to do what I wanted to do. And so I was just fortunate to be able to find and everything just aligned correctly that I was able to sell my business.
1: I love this story. We talk a lot about this idea of, of pull factors, but the people who generally are happiest with their exits uh they're they're not just leaving something, they're going to something. And so you're in your case, you've done an amazing job of, of visioning the future. But we got to go back a little bit to some of the practical stuff that you did to make this business sellable. Yes. One thing that strikes me is your name is Kieran Merchant, mm-hmm. and the company was Merchant Aviation. Yes. What impact did having your surname in the company name? have on your ability to separate yourself personally from the company?
2: It is a very interesting question, and and that was very, very important. Uh, So so the name I picked Merchant Aviation, and again, it was Friday night after a couple of drinks, my wife and I were just basically throwing ideas. And and the reason why Merchant Aviation stuck was because it did not, even though it had my name, it had a nice ring to it. Merchant, uh, uh, of Venice, merchant navy, you know, so, so that kind of had a good ring to it. So that we went after that because of that. However, didn't realize, um, and, and whether with the name or not, one of the things that the, the people who acquired my company told me, uh, during the final negotiation is that you are the company. It's your goodwill and your reputation is what uh, has built this company. How are we going to, to survive if you're not around? And we want to make sure uh that there is that continuation. So I realized very later on, and whether I had called it merchant deviation or you know something else, what I realized was that uh that my company had a lot riding on my personal uh, relationships, my personal way of doing business uh, and my personal knowledge. Um, And that was very difficult for me to tell my, my potential buyers that regardless of that, you know, what is the potential of the industry? What is it that we are doing? How can I help you? And so, you know, kind of fast forward, uh Merchant Aviation was acquired in two thousand and eighteen uh, It's been five years now. I'm still working for Merchant aviation as as a board member. I'm the vice chairman of the board and and this is something that was I only had a two year contract after the acquisition. I could have left after two years. Uh, the reason why I stayed was that my team is growing my team is doing very well but I had this personal engagement with both my clients and the people who acquired the company where I wanted to help both of them to succeed. Um, and, and so I'm very fortunate that I'm in this position where I get to provide strategic advice to my own company and to my clients and be able to kind of bring both of them together. Um, you know, I'm also making sure that my team is growing enough to be able to take that leadership that tomorrow, if I get hit by the bus, you know, they're not going to fall apart. And I think that, you know, that that at this point, I feel very satisfied that my team is ready. So tomorrow, if I'm not around, they will still succeed because they have understood the business model. They have realized what they need to provide. My clients understand what we bring to the table and so i think that it is it is at a at a good level right now to be able to do that but coming back to the name so it's not so much in the name of the company it was about what i was doing and and kind of being the whole and soul of the company uh which became pretty apparent to me in the early discussions that clients of the, the acquisition uh, potential acquisition partners were not comfortable in, in in taking over the company that actually had one person uh uh riding on one person's reputation and, and goodwill. So,
1: and how did they let you know that they were not comfortable? Was it just the offers were poor or did they just say outright we're not doing it? So so
2: how that happened was that they basically and 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 uh, and, and we can probably go into this a little bit because I, I've heard about you know that people talk about earnouts, right? So so I did not have any earnouts. I basically had. I was very clear from the very beginning. I kind of said, "Okay, this is the price. I will agree on a price, and you pay hundred percent upfront." Um, there was this this discussion that happened, where basically um, people who were negotiating, uh, who were not kind of at the high level executives, who were kind of in the nitty gritty of doing due diligence. Kept on asking this question and said, how do we go back to our investment committee and convince them that if we, we acquire the business, you walk away and then it, it collapses. So I said, I will change your strategy from from being penalizing me. like Because that's what they were saying. Earnout is the only way we can we can assure ourselves that uh, you're going to be a, you're going to be staying around. And I said, you're thinking this in a wrong way. You're thinking is like penalizing me for walking away. Instead of that, why don't you incentivize me so that I would stay? And here's the proposal. Here is what we are going to do for next three years. If I get you A, I get a certain bonus. If I get you B, I get a certain bonus. And here, I'm going to basically put myself online and say an impossible task. Of basically getting thirty million dollars of revenue in the next thirty months. If I don't get that, if I get that, I get a, 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 a hefty bonus. If I don't get it, you don't pay me. So I said, now we are basically changing into an incentive program. Now I have a skin in the game, and and I would stay. And that worked like magic because they started looking at the growth potential instead of a uh, potential of of losing business.
1: What did you think it was worth as you were growing the business? Did you have a sense of of a company, a consulting company, what it might be worth?
2: When I started talking about the worth of the company, I never looked at what a standard uh, uh, engineering, architectural practices they go for is two to three times multiplier the EBITDA. And everybody told me that that's how the industry works. That is how you're going to get the valuation. And I said, no, that's too little. I mean, I could basically stay in for three, four years and I can make that same money myself. Why would I sell the company? And I want to sell my company 10 times by EBITDA. And everybody looked at me as if I had two heads. Uh, and they said, there's no way in, in, a, in a consulting service, in a, in a in, in an engineering architectural planning practice. This is never heard of. You cannot do that. And and there was one friend who basically kind of came to my aid, and he said, Kiran, what you need to do is that you need to stop thinking about what is your company. You need to bring in the vision of what the industry is. He said, go back to your first Uh, slide of your business plan where you say that there is a hundred and five billion dollar pent up demand to develop airport infrastructure. He said, that's what you're selling. You're not selling your, your, you know, small revenue firm with 12 employees. You're selling an entrance into the largest lucrative aviation consulting market in the world. And that's what you're selling. And that kind of changed my entire mentality. Uh, And that's when I started talking to the potential buyers. The discussion was not about what merchant aviation does year over year, but it was about, how can I open the doors for you to get into this lucrative market? And this is the entrance into this market because we will get your foot in the door And this is how you will be successful. So it was it was an interesting kind of dialogue where I had to I had to first work on myself of what I was uh, trying to sell uh, instead of what I was doing.
1: So smart. How how big did you get? You mentioned you were 12, like by the time you sold, how how big were you? Sure. So, So we grew
2: very quickly. So, you know, from that Saturday morning, sitting around on my dining table, we were at my dining table for first three months. We got our small office in the three months. Within 12 months, we were about 12 employees. At the end of 12 months, I basically kind of realized that I had to either go and hire another 10 or 12 people to be able to kind of deal with the workload or I had to bring in partners. Um, Again, being a small consulting firm, I knew very well that I'm in a very saturated market where there are a lot of people offering the consulting services and they have been established for 30, 40, 50 years. If I went to them, they would be very happy to help me for the first month But they would basically cut me out by the second month and take over the project and say, well, okay, Kiran does not have the horsepower to be able to do this. We're going to do this. So I had to be very strategic in terms of finding the partners. And in my initial um, dealings, I had dealt with the company uh, called Airport de Paris, uh, uh, called ADP, Group ADP. Uh, which is one of the world's largest airport operator. But they had their own subsidiary of engineering and planning uh, airport infrastructure. And I had dealt with them uh, during my some earlier dealings. And I knew that they do, did a very um, uh, very important and very different work. So I flew down to Paris. I met with the CEO of ADP Engineering. And I said, look, I have a proposition for you. I'm running a company. I need support. I would give you work. You become my subconsultants. They looked at me and said, who are you? Like, you know who ADP is? And I said, I understand this. said, well, if you want, we can basically be in the United States tomorrow. And I'm like, please, go ahead, try it. I said, I will tell you one thing. I know that you have tried to be in the U.S. market and have not been successful. And I said, I'll tell you why. It's because of my competitors who will never allow you to be successful in the US market because they don't want people coming from outside. So I said, you have three choices. I said, either you uh, do a joint venture uh, with somebody like me, or you go ahead and put a team of 10 people and, and do a marketing for about five, six, 10 years. You may be successful, you may not be successful, or you acquire a company like mine. I said, you have only three options. I said, I'm offering you something that we need to work together and you have nothing to re- to lose over here. You'd have no risk. You will be able to work in the U.S. market, be able to build a portfolio to say that this is what you're doing. And this is something that uh, will be uh, will be a kind of risk aversive uh, approach for you because you're getting the project, the first project without spending a, a single penny on marketing dollars
1: when you made that proposal to adp or or you laid out those three different routes they could choose strategic partnership take the long road and spend 10 years slogging it out or acquire a company like yours did did you know at that time you wanted them to pick door number three so
2: i can tell today that 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 was one of my strategies I would have never accepted it or never, never actually kind of confessed that that's what basically my approach was. But yes, when I flew down to Paris the first time, I always had this feeling in my head that I want these guys to acquire me someday. Um, And it was interesting because that business plan I talked about, I did show it to the CEO of ADP Engineering at that time. And I said, here's what the, the, the potential is in this market. I said, you can choose not to be in the, in this U.S. market, but I'll tell you one thing. You will be leaving 50% of the potential revenue at the table because U.S. aviation market is 50% of the entire global aviation market. So I said, not being in U.S. basically leaves you kind of not able to grow. So yes, you can be in, in, in globally a, a mega company. But if you're not in the U.S., you're losing this, this market. And I said, what do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose over here. I'm hiring you as a subconsultant. You get the revenues that you basically will be charging me. Uh, we will kind of do this as merchant aviation offering. Uh, the only catch in this is that you will sign a non-compete with me where you cannot compete with me for two years after the project is over. And I said, that is to for me to protect myself, because once you have the portfolio, you can say, well, I don't need Kiran at this point. And they were very honest and and upfront and said, absolutely. Uh, They did not know what they were getting into. Uh, but within, within three months of me getting ADP on board, I had given them a $3 million contract in developing planning. And they were just basically fabergasted because of that, because they realized that I had something, uh, that they had tried to be in this market. They were unsuccessful. And within first three months, I was able to basically kind of show them a potential. So this was in the 15th month. In the 18th month of uh, of the company's life, they started coming to me and started talking to me and said, well, have you thought of joint venture? Are you interested? Can we maybe buy some stocks in merchant Aviation?" Um, and I'm like, okay, this is working, but I was not sure what I was basically doing. And I said, well, you know, I'm open to the discussion. Um, but I'm not sure. Uh, let's, let me hear what you have to say. Uh, so they gave me an LOI, um, uh, letter of intent, a letter of intent and, 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 um, and then basically started doing the due diligence, uh, and then they made me an offer, which was a standard industry offer, uh, you know, two times the EBITDA, 50% uh, upfront, 50% in earnout. And I'm like, no, I don't think that I'm interested because this does not even cut. I'm like, I will be making more money before the deal is closed than what you're offering me. Uh, it was interesting that, you know, it was a learning experience because what I would I would say is that dealing with people on the lower scale of of uh, you know kind of the people who are doing purely due diligence, their job is to basically find the the most uh, effective deal. Um, and I think that it's not that they are basically they have bad intentions, but their job is to basically kind of do go through, drill through the numbers, drill through the the potential, and kind of look at it. And and invariably, what I've seen is that they lose forest in the trees. Uh, for me to be able to make a deal, and this was kind of my earlier discussions with my, my, my friends who had sold the company. They told me that, Kiran, you will go through this process and you will make a deal over a dinner or a lunch. And you will shake hands on something that uh, you would be surprised. And it was absolutely true because I had to get myself in front of the entrepreneurs in that company to tell them the potential that I was basically kind of aiming for. And with them, it was a very quick discussion. They immediately looked around and said, you don't need to talk about it anymore because we understand what you're saying. And that's the reason why we are interested in your company. So once I knew that they basically were there, it was very, very quick in kind of coming up with numbers, coming up with a handshake on, on a deal that that was good for them and acceptable to me.
1: They had raised the the middle-level folks had sort of said two times, but uh half up front, etc. Did you go back to the more senior entrepreneurial folks and get kind of give them your number? It wasn't two, it was X yes did you go back some with something? Yes, so
2: so I had done the valuation and it is like again like so this is one of the things that that anybody who wants to do this thing that that the value of uh having good friends, uh good consultants is 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 very very valuable. And it is something that I would say that is 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 extremely nerve wracking because you are spending money on a potential that may never uh, materialize, which is extremely, extremely important to understand. Surround yourself with people who actually will give you sound advice. Uh, you don't have to listen to anybody. At the end of the day, you have to make your own decision. But having a, a point of view that is not yours, because when you're developing the company, it's your baby and you're emotional. You have to detach yourself uh, because everything that you make is an emotional decision. People who are not vested in your company can give you that objective point of view. And that was very important to me. So so I hired a company that that does standard evaluations. Uh, I could not afford them. So I kind of made a deal with them. And I said, look. You know, I don't think that I can have this thing, but uh, uh, I think there is a potential that if this company acquires us, you could probably get some future business as well. I can bring you on. So you need to basically give me something. And I said, here's the reason. and I'll give you my homework of how I've come up with a number. So I gave them a, a full research material of why we think that a certain uh, Um, The the, the, the services that we were offering, the company that that we had built was worth a certain amount. Uh, And so I had a third-party valuation, which had three columns. One was the standard, you know, two times the multiplier of EBITDA. It happens with this. Here's the company that basically has gone with five or six times EBITDA. And here are the companies that have done eight to ten times EBITDA. Um, so they kind of did it in a very smart way to basically say, well, we've done, our it could be, you take whatever you want to take out of this valuation. And I said always that, look, it is for me, the first two, two columns do not matter. It's the last column because I'm selling you $105 billion worth of infrastructure consulting work. I'm not selling you what I'm making. So either you take it or you leave it. and it was interesting because uh, it was nerve-wracking because it was something that uh, I may have walked away from the deal at least three times. Uh, there was at one point, they probably were going to walk away from the deal. Um, but I think that the the, the the strong advice, what really I think that was valuable to me because they uh, it, it just gave me a perspective. Uh, and at the end, I did not listen to anybody. I basically went on my own and basically kind of stayed true to my own uh, uh kind of feelings. It would have been disastrous because I also know one thing that, you know, when I made the deal was a very strategic time. Everything aligned. If I did not make the deal at that time, probably this deal would have never gone through. So it was, I was just lucky. I was fortunate to be able to find people on the other side of the table who saw the vision and believed in the vision. Uh, And it's not always the case. So so that's what I would basically say that anybody who's looking at that, surround yourself with, with people who can give you sound advice.
1: So this consulting firm, if I'm understanding correctly, came back and said, there's a breadth of possible outcomes here. Engineering consulting firms trade at lots of different multiples. You know, sometimes they trade it at, at around two times EBITDA. There's there's a group of deals in the past that have traded more like five and six, and there's some that trade as high as eight or ten. That's the so they came back and said uh, th- they provided precedent, uh, if if I'm understanding correctly, right? Of the range of possible outcomes, right? Got it. So, okay. so
2: So just one thing that I would basically add to this also is that when i started talking to my my close friend and and my wife was the one who basically said you need to talk to this person and bring them on board because they have done this in the past and he told me one thing very uh, importantly and i i kind of asked him because he was in in it and tech uh and i said i i hear everybody saying that you know it is it is certain times multiplier to the existing EBITDA and all of that, I said, "How does these dot com companies, who basically have no employees, not a single penny in revenue, some cockamamie idea on paper, and they sell themselves for billions of dollars? How is it possible?" Uh, and I said, "I want to do that. I, you know, I don't want to basically fit in a box." And he said, "And that's when he said that you need to sell a potential." Of what you can do instead of what you're doing today uh so so that was another thing that basically kind of was the when 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 the company came up with valuation, the last column was about the potential uh, and 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 that was something that was a struggle to convince the buyers that that's the way you should be looking at.
1: And how did you do that? What did you first of all show them the, the PowerPoint with the three potential outcomes? You, so you you kind of were transparent about it. You said these are the, this is what our consulting firm has come back with. Yes. So
2: so so the mid level management people who were doing the due diligence, they were very very thorough. Uh, they were very specific, and they did everything correct. So in in a, in a normal circumstances, they would have been right. Uh, But they just couldn't see beyond because their job was to say, I'm not going to look at what is the potential. I'm going to look at what what have you done. He said, as it is, an 18-month-old company is too young for us to even look at. Uh, We should not be basically kind of acquiring a company that does not have any track record. Uh, So they were doing their job. for me it was it was that's the reason why i had to get to the more senior level executives who i knew that were the ones who were going to make the deal at the end to convince them what was the potential and actually show them that bigger picture
1: how did you do that without pissing off the middle manager people oh, you were effectively going around their back
2: yes and then, and that was very important because uh, you're absolutely right. It was basically they had assigned a person who basically was going to make the deal, was responsible. And, you know, I, t- I talked earlier about penalizing versus incentivizing. And in fact, basically kind of increasing the valuation more than what they were offering uh, was something that was part of the strategy. Um, what I did mention to them, because it was, uh, I told them that why it does not work for me. And and they did tell me that, you know, how would we go to our seniors and basically tell them, you know, that this is what we're doing. I said, can you do me a favor and can you allow me to be able to convince your seniors? Uh, because your job is to close the deal. Uh, I would make you look, I would give you the deal, but on my terms. And, and uh, you know, this is if, if your seniors come back and say that, We're not interested. It's fine, but allow me to be able to kind of do that. And that was what basically, so I was very open and transparent with them. Um, and, and they were very confident that nobody is going to give me, uh, uh, the, the the time of the day to basically convince them. Um, but it was, it was amazing to be able to talk to these people. And in fact, you know i feel so strong the reason why i'm still engaged with the company is because i know that they are this amazing company that have done some amazing things around the globe and they were the entrepreneurial spirit and 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 kind of our spirits aligned together so you know i kind of tapped into that and i said i gave them the the, the, the their own deals that they had made which were in billions of dollars um uh, Uh, other acquisitions. And I said, look, here's the reason why you did this thing. This was the risk. I'm like, what are you talking about with me is, it's not even a drop in an ocean. Uh, So I don't think that we should be talking so much about it because you're losing money every day that you're not actually acquiring the company.
1: Kieran, sometimes people on the other side of the negotiation table, when they hear a pitch like the one that you gave, which is, hey, let's talk about the opportunity. Let's talk about the size of the market, et cetera. They say, great, Karen, I agree with you. Market's huge. I think that's great. We'll put it in an earnout, And we'll structure your deals so that you'll get a little bit of money up front. And if you hit it out of the park and you get a good share of that $100 billion market, then we'll, we'll pay you handsomely. Is that what they did? Yes, absolutely. And and
2: they, they started with that. And this is what I said earlier, that that what happened was that. Uh, so so one thing that I would say is that, you know, because it was an international company, it was a French company. They had hired attorneys in the United States who were one of the largest legal firms in the country. Uh, Every time I used to go to the negotiation table, it was me and one of my attorneys. And I had, I had advised him that you will not talk. You will not negotiate. I will be the one who'll be doing all the talking. You just tell me what is doable or what is not doable after the meeting. You will not contradict me or second guess me in the meeting. It was, it was, it was very interesting. I would go into this meeting with like 10 of this high profile attorneys. And, and two of us would be sitting down and, and there was no parity. Like, you know, I was no one and these guys were really multi-billion dollar global company. Um, one of the things that they did say that that this is basically, and this is where I kind of turned it around and said, you know, instead of, so what if you offer me something too low, uh, the reason why it does not make any sense because I might as well stay for another three years and I will make the same money. And and control my own destiny after three years. Um, so if I if I have to sell it, it has to be enough for me to be able to make for next ten to twelve years that I'm getting upfront, and that's the reason why you will get a discount. So I cannot afford to basically do the earn out. But let's turn this around, and instead of basically making it an earn out. You can call it an earn out, but let's make it an incentive package. And we say, here are the, the targets that if I meet these targets or if the merchant deviation meets these targets in next three years or two and a half years, this was like 30 months, uh, is what, what we had agreed upon. And and I said, if, if we make these targets, then at every point I get an additional bonus. Um, and And that's how I actually ended up basically getting uh, a higher value than what i had originally thought that I would get. Uh, I was lucky enough that we made those targets. Um, one target, the, last, the final target was almost impossible, but it was literally we made that target like a month before the 30th month. And I just basically had tears in my eyes and my, my wife and I was sitting down saying, I don't know how, like somebody is watching over us because I don't know how this 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 thing happened. We're just incredibly lucky that that we are in this situation.
1: Amazing. If you could proportion it for me, like in terms of the total compensation you earned out of the deal, what proportion would have been, you know, basic what, what you know people call a downstroke, but basically paid at, at, at closing versus the variable bonuses that you earned for hitting the targets? Like, are we talking? Thirty percent more because he hit the targets, or so. So
2: yeah, it was about twenty five percent more. Uh, okay, okay, twenty five percent more, um, and and uh, and that was one of the things that what I had in my early discussions with all my friends who had sold the company. The reason why I wanted to stay away from earnout was because I had I had heard these stories number of times that people get dissatisfied, they walk away. Uh, sooner than their term and they leave the money on the table. Uh, i had heard that story time and time again. And I said, I don't want to be in this situation. I don't, if I don't get the bonuses, I can deal with that, but I cannot basically not get my basic, uh, terms that my base value has to be upfront. Uh, and, and that is the only way I would accept the deal. Um, and And I think that for 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 me, it worked out. I don't think that it works out every time, but you know because I kind of gave them this this confidence that I will stay and I will help you grow. And if you grow, you pay me the bonus, which was kind of a a, a, a decision that was that was kind of they could relate to it. They basically saw that I have confidence in in what I'm selling and I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. Uh, and I think that that basically worked out um, for both of us.
1: Sounds like it. Hey, this story is incredible. I'm so glad that you shared it with me and our listeners. Are you up for a quick lightning round of questions that uh, before I let you go, these just require you know a sentence or two answer?
2: Sure, sure, sure.
1: Okay. It sounds like you dealt with uh, lots of different outside folks. Were Was there a slimy trick that, Ac- any acquirer or investor tried to play on you in the process of getting your company, either a share of your company or all of your company for less than it was worth? So, uh, I mean, for me, I did
2: not have any slimy uh, kind of uh, uh, approach. Uh, uh, it was very clear, very specific in terms of this is the industry standard. This is how the acquisitions take place. Uh you know, and, and this is, this is what we're going to follow. So they had their very standard formula that they were following. And I knew that that formula existed. And I knew that from all my friends that basically that is the only way it will work. Um, it, it was working on myself first and then convincing them of an alternative. Um, uh, and I think that it worked out because they were international company. They were not, um, a, a, a local company, because I had three potential uh, buyers. Uh, and, and this is an important point that basically how why I, I stayed true to the people that I wanted to sell the company uh, from the very first uh, day uh, before I even kind of went into the market. Uh, and then and that was ADP, was because I had been on the receiving end of consulting services. And what I did not want to do was that I did not want to get acquired by another consulting firm who was just basically going to offer the same services. And so for their, um, the incentive was to basically get the accessibility to my contracts was, would be their intention of acquiring the company. Versus I wanted to make sure that it worked for my own employees. It worked for the, for the purchaser. But most importantly, it worked for my clients. And that was a very important point that I wanted to bring, which was in, in consulting firms, as you probably know, that that you know, when you sign a contract, uh, you know, for any material change, the client has an ability to cancel your contract. So one thing that I had to do was that I had to prove it to the buyer first and then to go back to my client that none of these clients are going to cancel the existing contracts. And and I had to go to all my clients, each one of them, and actually tell them and convince them that, look, I'm bringing in somebody who is probably one of the top class companies and airport operator in the world. Uh, by, by merging with them, I'm giving you best of both worlds. You will get this boutique services that my company have been offering with a giant parent company that will provide you with services from global team. And I said, that none of my competitors will ever be able to provide. So I said, by doing this thing that, you know, allow me to do this thing, because this is good for me personally, but it is also good for you. And I said, we're bringing in a new blood into the market that would not be existing. So by me making this deal, I'm bringing in the top of the line consulting firm who's actually a client first, who is an airport operator first and provide you with the services because from the user perspective, and this is a unique proposition. And that is what has won us all these projects to date.
1: When you just describe that situation, You made a slight, not sure if it was a slip of the tongue or, or variation in what you described, which was if you allow us to merge with ADP. And up until now, we've been talking about selling your business and getting acquired. And all of a sudden, the word merger. He's a little softer. <laughs> yes. Did you intentionally use the word merger as opposed to getting acquired? And if so, why? Yes,
2: yes. And, 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 and the reason why I basically, you know, kind of use merger, you know, and I, we still basically kind of, you know, we use acquisition and we use merger, you know, in different contexts, even mm-hmm. today. Uh, uh, but particularly at that time, what I wanted to basically convince them was that this is more of a merger, because it's not like tomorrow, all these great people that you know of Virgin deviation are going to disappear, and you're going to have like somebody who is foreigners from outside who are going to come in and basically kind of provide you with something that you will not be able to digest. Um, it's, it's truly merging of two uh, philosophies, uh, you know, merging of two very very specific dynamic kind of best of both worlds that you know that you will get this services as a boutique firm uh with 7000 employees in the back who could be activated uh within hours of your need uh, it, it sounds and- super compelling <laughs> Yeah, Yeah.
1: it sounds super compelling. What was the biggest mistake that you made personally in the process of exiting your company? If you had it to do over again, you wish you could sort of do this differently.
2: Um, The biggest mistake, I think that what I did was I did not plan after my financials, after the acquisition, uh, after the deal was completed. Uh, And and I I think that that is one place where I basically, I would say that if I were to do it again, Uh, I had planned everything up to the acquisition. I did not plan after the acquisition Uh, and and mainly my financials.
1: Tell me more. How did that, like you had a big check in your hand. How does that, what what could possibly go wrong?
2: So, so, so the first is that, you know, basically I, I, I literally cried and I'm not joking. I cried when I wrote that first check to IRS for my taxes. And that was kind of. The, the 20 years of my total income for last 20 years combined, uh, was in one, one tax bill that I had to pay. Uh, uh, so, so that was, that was what I think that I could have planned better. Uh, that is number one. Uh, number two, um, and, and I could have learned certain things, which is basically kind of to take uh, you know, I would have basically been served better if I basically took, you know, again, it was an emotional thing about saying, Oh, I don't want to know earn out. I'm going to basically take bonuses if I get this thing. If I had not called it bonus and if I had called it earn out, I would have paid capital gain tax instead of the regular income tax. So it's tax planning is something that I should have done, uh, ahead of time. Um, and then what happens is that what do you do with that money that you get that you basically never had in your life uh you know i you, you're always like thinking in terms of oh my god like fdic only only uh, insures 250000 dollars how many bank accounts do i need to open uh <laughs> and so so it is all like it, these are the things that uh, you I, I learned over 5 years of after selling the company but that was what something I feel that I probably I wouldn't say it was a mistake, but it was not properly planned, and I could have done better planning ahead of time.
1: I've heard selling a business characterized as a roller coaster emotionally. Describe, if you would, the high and the low of the selling process. What was your highest emotional moment of selling your company, and what was the lowest? Um. So
2: the. The lowest was, uh, um, it was, it was interesting because my counterpart, the CEO of the engineering, ADB engineering, uh, uh, was a wonderful human being and, 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 and somebody who basically kind of, I, I made the, the, the deal for, uh, uh, was the, 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 the former, uh, second uh, top commander in French uh, uh, armed forces, uh, retired, uh, was a fighter pilot, uh, and I used to tell him about why we call ourselves MAV, and I'm like, you are actually a MAV. Uh, you are the top gun. Um, and we were standing uh, at the top of Arc uh, de uh, uh in Paris, and, and uh, we had series of negotiations that did not go well and I stood over there with him and that was probably the lowest moment of my my whole process where he was explaining me that you know the, the Bastille Day parade that you know the aircraft the air force aircraft would fly on top of Champs Elysees and he was standing over there and he was saying oh look we would basically start flying from there and we will come down. And as soon as we pass this spot, we will basically go down. And I was listening to him. And I'm like, how can I not make this deal where I was about to walk away from it? Um, and 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 my wife and I had had this discussion before. And she has been extremely supportive of this thing. And she said, Kiran, come back. We don't need to sell the company uh, because the negotiations were not going well. And I was about to tell him that I'm sorry, but this is not going to work out. And, and I told him a year after the co- acquisition was complete, I'm like, Gracia, on that day, if you had thrown, after what you told me, that what you were doing for year after year, if you had given me half the money, I would have taken it that day. <laughs> because I just was in complete awe that I'm standing next to somebody so great, uh, how can I basically refuse anything? uh and he said well i should have basically kind of looked in your eyes and just pressed the buttons at that time so that was the lowest uh uh time the highest was basically uh i would say that uh, uh you know kind of obviously getting the check in the hand uh you know uh, up until that point that you always keep uh doubting yourself uh, you uh never thought that you are worth uh uh this you know and 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 like everybody else i had struggled for 30 years and 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 never got anywhere in life and i started doubting myself am i good enough um and you never believe that you know something good can happen to you and so when i got the check my wife and my daughter were not uh with me uh they were at a at a relative's wedding, and I call them up, and I'm like, uh, "Can you guys just sit down?" Um, and I want you to basically open up the bank statement right now while we are on the phone, uh, and let's just take a moment uh, to 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 see and let this sink in what has just happened. And I think that was the highest moment to basically kind of say, "Well, okay." You know, we have crossed the hump. We we've, we've gone over the hump. Uh, and we've act extremely fortunate to be able to be in this situation.
1: What was your wife's reaction?
2: I think she like she started crying, I started crying, uh uh because we never we never dreamt that this could happen to people like us. So yeah, it was it was amazing and and I think that um uh, you know, it, again, it was emotional because we started the company on our dining table, never actually thought that we would grow this big uh, so quickly. Uh, acquisition was just a dream. It was, uh, or selling the company was a dream. It was not, we wanted to do something which was adding value to people around us. And and that was the thinking, Uh never thinking that, you know, something like this could actually happen in our lifetime.
1: A little more than the eight grand the Port Authority refused to pay you for a raise.
2: That's right. Yes.
1: Should have shown them the bank account. (laughs) That's right. You guys, good luck with your retirement. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Were there anybody uh, or any resources? It sounds like you lent uh, heavily on some friends that had sold companies. Were there other resources that you could? You could point our listeners to that were helpful along the way of of learning how to sell a company. Were there books? Were there courses? Anything that you can point folks to?
2: So I would say absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I was not prepared. I did not know anything about actually starting a company, running a company. Forget about selling the company. And a lot of it was research on the web. Trying to basically kind of learn uh, or kind of drink from the fire hose, uh, uh, very very quickly. So you know, I think that I would uh, kind of urge everybody to kind of you know take classes. There are there's tons and tons of resources. There are great books. Your book, uh, which I read after this after I sold the company.
1: You're supposed to do it the other way around by the way <laughs> that's right
2: yes uh, and 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 kind of learned that you know what what things I did correctly and what I did not I could have done better so I think that that is basically i would say that you know learn everything that you can and and for me um you know one of the things that what I had personally as a as a handicap I, I'm partially dyslexic I have re- reading disability and 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 that for many, many years, I, I realized this at a very late stage in my life. So for me, reading was very difficult. Um and, and any visual um presentations like video or classes kind of really helped me. So, you know, what I would say is that you know don't just focus on your your weaknesses or inabilities to do something. There are there are tons and tons of resources available uh to talk to people uh to be able to basically understand this. And and you don't need to know it all uh, as you go into this thing. You know, uh be confident in what what you have to offer, what value add that do you bring in? Because I think at the end of the day, it is about the value that you bring in. Because the purchasers are not interested only in in acquiring a product or a service company, but they are really interested in and basically, that how can this change, or, or or if this tool kind of came in their arsenal, how can they basically improve their services? And so it is all about value added, uh, proposition. And as long as you can basically focus on that from your day one, you know, eventually when you want to sell it, that will be your pitch uh, that you will be selling it to.
1: Well said. <laughs> Last question before I let you go. Did you buy yourself any sort of trophy to commemorate the win? Uh, so uh
2: no, I did not buy the trophy. Uh, but but there were a couple of things that happened. So, first and foremost was that I told you that I wanted to retire when I was fifty-five. Uh, I sold the company when I was fifty-four. I retired, uh, I, I made the decision to retire. Um uh, uh, just couple of months before my 57th birthday. And that was, I stayed for a year, extra year because of pandemic, because I didn't want to abandon the company during pandemic. So I stayed for one more year, even though I had two year contract. I stayed for three years. Uh, but I was able to basically retire. And I think that was my trophy, uh, because that was something that I really wanted to do. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of launched a, a new company, uh, The day after I retired, (coughs) which, by the way, is called Merchant Creatives. Uh, And that is basically to kind of go ahead and start uh, looking at potential projects in theater and film. So I'm working on my next feature film um, that probably will go on set sometime in 2025. Uh, And I'm working on a couple of off-Broadway plays that I will be directing next year.
1: You're living the dream. <laughs> yes, you're living the dream. You built yes. the company to sell. You sold it, and now you're on to uh, passion project. I am so grateful that you shared your story here, Kieran. I really appreciate it. Thank you, you shared a ton of wisdom with our listeners, and I'm grateful for you doing this.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate everything, and 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 I have to tell you that you know I started listening to the podcast uh, recently, and I just feel that. There's tons and tons of information learning from people who have done so. I'm sure that your listeners are really getting a great value. And I want to thank you for, for doing this because, you, you know, I'm sure that people come and tell you, but I, what you're providing is such an invaluable resource oh, to people who young. want to basically kind of uh, achieve this dream.
1: So that's very kind. If, if, if people want to reach out to Karen, uh, I'm assuming I, I, your LinkedIn profile is the best place for folks to message you if they wanted to say hi on social media. Yes. Yes.
2: My, my LinkedIn profile is, is active. It still has my, my aviation, uh, uh profile on it. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my company is called Merchant Creative. So, you know, there is a, there's a, an email to that also, so you can basically reach out to me uh, on that as well.
1: Excellent. We'll put the link to Merchant Creative, your email, and your LinkedIn profile all in the show notes at com. Kieran, okay. thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a good night.
0: And there you have it for today's episode between John and Kieran. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to watch this full video interview, you can do so by heading over to our YouTube channel at Built to Sell Radio. If you want to help support the podcast, you can either do so by sharing this podcast out with a friend or colleague or by heading over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have the chance to leave a rating and review. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, be sure to visit Kieran's episode page over at BuiltToSell.com. Not only are there links to everything referenced, but also definitions for some of the more technical terms that were used in today's podcast special thanks to dennis Labatagla for handling today's audio engineering and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company to get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself head over to valuebuilder.com i'm colin morgan and i look forward to talking to you again next week